One day Samuel said to Saul, "It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel." Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So Saul mobilized his army at Telem. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent his warning to the Kenites. Move away from where the Amalekites live or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Chur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag and the Amal the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats. the cattle the fat calves and the lambs everything in fact that appealed to them they destroyed only what was worthless or of pure quality a poor quality and may god have reading up blessing of his holy word thank you thank you jesus christ in name we pray amen this is the type of passage the one before us this morning that pastors don't choose Uh, for obvious reasons, right? Uh, God is commanding Saul to kill children, babies, infants, uh, and that seems troubling. That's very troubling to me. I don't know if it's troubling to you, but it's very troubling to me. And so, as we work through the text, um, we're going to see we're going to see why the scriptures tell us why. Uh, I'm not going to uh, try and you know justify what God is doing by human standards. It doesn't make much sense for us to do that. We're going to treat this text like we treat every other text. Um, I thought about starting an Advent series this morning. After I read the text for today, <laughs> but no, we will continue to walk through God's scripture. That is the standard that we set here. It is uh, the standard that I think God gives us in His Bible. So we'll walk through this. We'll see it in three parts. First, we'll see verses one through three, God's command. We'll see verses four through six, Saul's war. 
we will see verses 7 through 9, Saul's disobedience. Um, Again, when we think about this text and God's command, usually we think about God's commands as being just right, good commands, uh, commands that are meant for the good of, of His people, commands that are meant for the good of all nations. We think of God as a loving God. We think of God as a just God. We think of God as being the one who sets the moral standard. God who spoke the words, Thou shalt not kill and then also here telling Saul to to go and kill children and infants and so we'll work through the first part of this passage uh, chapter 15 verses 1 through 3 starting in verse 1 good place to start then Samuel said to Saul the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. In the previous passage, uh, we, saw, uh, we saw Samuel take a, a break, rest from telling us all of the negative things about Saul's life and Saul spiraling out of control. And it's a good thing we had rest before we read this verse, right? Um, but here, Samuel just reminds us of everything that we saw in the previous passage of, of Scripture. Um, God is the one who anointed Saul. God is the one who chose Saul. God is the one who had a job for Saul, a purpose for promoting Saul to king over Israel. And this purpose was that Saul would punish the Canaanites, that the Canaanites would be defeated, the Amalekites would be defeated, Israel would be delivered from the Philistines. And we've seen that explicit purpose in the text of we, as we have walked through 1 Samuel together. We saw uh, in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, the great flood, the worldwide flood subsided, after this great flood, um, Ham, and I actually need to make a correction from two Sundays ago, because I said that Canaan, the son of Ham, walked in on on Noah and saw Noah naked and drunk, uh, but that is not the case. It was Ham. And so, and so Noah curses the son of Ham, Canaan, because Ham walks in and sees his father drunk and naked. And one of the ways that, that Noah curses Ham is that Canaan, Canaan's descendants, will be cursed. They will be the enemies of God. They will be under the hand of Shem. And of course, we know that Abraham descended from Shem and uh, the Canaanites here in this land, including the Amalekites that we read about in this in this verse, in this passage, they are descendants of Ham, a cursed people from generation to generation to generation. Now, I want to expand on this just a, a little bit. If you hear cracks in my voice, I apologize. I am getting over, uh, I guess it was a cold or some kind of weird sinus thing this week. So if you all of a sudden hear my voice, you know, get really high. It's that's the reason, okay? Um, it's, it's either that or I'm just trying to provide some comic relief this morning. Uh, you don't have to be so serious sitting out there. Uh, yeah, so I, wanna, I just want to expand on what we discovered two weeks ago in the, in the previous passage. Uh, in Exodus chapter 17, um, the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. Uh, and the Amalekites actually come out of Canaan to meet the Israelites in battle. It's like they know, they receive the news that the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. And we remember Genesis chapter 15, where God uh, promised Abraham or told Abraham 
that uh, the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, would go into Egypt 400 years later. They would come out and they would actually take the land of Canaan from the Amalekites because at that point, 400 years after Abraham, uh, the Amalekites' sin will be full grown. And so here Israel is now in Exodus chapter 17 coming out of Egypt and the Amalekites are probably aware of this prophecy, right? Spoken by God to Abraham and shared by Abraham to his to his sons and to his descendants and this is in the Hebrew Bible and so the Canaanites are aware of this the Amalekites are aware of this and they they come out against Israel and they wage war against Israel and this is the famous story in scripture where Moses had to hold his hands up right and as long as his hands were lifted in the air the Israelites would defeat the Amalekites uh, and so the Amalekites initiated this battle um, the Israelites won this particular battle but in the this story, we see that the Amalekites, even though God had prophesied that the Amalekites would be utterly destroyed, even though God, from the time of, of Canaan, the son of Ham, uh, made the Amalekites his enemy from generation to generation to generation, um, that the Amalekites are actually the ones who really initiated this struggle because they were enemies of God and because they had made an enemy of God from generation to generation to generation over the course of 400 years between Abraham and the Exodus and then 400 or 500 or 600 more years from the time of the Exodus to King Saul here in this passage. And so it's been like a thousand years that God has been bearing with the Amalekites. And a thousand years is a long time. And the Amalekites have been waging war against God for thousands of years from generation to generation to generation. And God has been an enemy of the Amalekites and he has been at war with them for generations and generations and generations. This is a cursed people. In Exodus chapter 17 verses 15 and 16 we see that God actually declares that he will have war against every generation of the Amalekites. And there's not one single generation. It's that early in Exodus, right? It's that early that God says every generation of the Amalekites is a cursed generation. Every generation is reprobate. I will have war against every generation of the Amalekites because their sin is full grown if we look all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. And this whole thing has to do with the sin of the people, right? From generation to generation to generation. And here, uh, Saul is even, is even 500 years after the sin has been full grown. So God is still bearing with this people with great grace and great mercy before giving this command to Saul against the Amalekites. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19, toward the end of the law, God actually commanded Israel, one of the final instructions that God gives the nation of Israel right before they enter into the land of Canaan and begin taking the land of Canaan. God says, when you go into the land, blot, blot the Amalekites out. Blot out their memory, everything about them. Blot them out when you go into the Land. And so what we're reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the first nine verses, this is just God instructing Saul to finish the work. Finish the work. Now something I want to notice about here in verse 1, then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people. Who is the one doing the anointing? 
what's ultimately God, right? Samuel, but ultimately God, right? God anointing Saul. Who is Saul ultimately obligated to? God. Is God obligated to Saul in any way? No, it would, it would be weird for us to say that God is obligated to anyone, right? Um, God is not obligated to Saul. Saul is obligated to God. Yet, through the course of the story so far, we have seen Saul act in such a way that God is obligated to him. He, he sacrifices in order to gain a victory from the Lord. He tries to follow the law in order to get God to be on his side and to give him victory. Saul cares about the financial state of his kingdom. And Saul seems to care about the physical battle victories of his kingdom and his his eyes as we saw you know two weeks ago in the previous passage his focus wasn't on the god of the fight his his focus is on the fight and i wonder how often we expect god to do the same for us or how often we feel entitled uh, especially as like a religious people god I am here and I am serving you and I am praying to you and I am in church every Sunday and I read my Bible and I know my Bible and I have the knowledge. God, I do all this for you. Why, why isn't my life just a little bit better? You know, we ask those questions and we feel entitled in that way. Uh, God, I have served you faithfully. Why aren't my children following you? We think about, we think about those sorts of things, um, really significant things. Um, and what we need to realize is much like Saul, uh, sometimes we treat God like we are the ones who are entitled or like he is obligated to us. And brothers and sisters, God is not obligated to us whatsoever. So when we look to verse 3 here, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, including men, women, and children, and livestock. And, and we see this command in Scripture. The first thing that we need to realize is God is not obligated to any person. He's not obligated to keep any person alive. He is not obligated to admit any person into heaven. God is sovereign. God is God, is God and it is actually people who are obligated to him. And, and the Amalekites, they have not surrendered to God. They have made war against God. They have been the enemies of God from generation to generation to generation to generation. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, because he anointed you, Saul, because he is instructing you to listen, you are obligated to him. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. And there God just reminds Saul of the fact that Amalek, the children of Amalek, the Amalekites, came out against Israel to start off with. Even though God had prophesied all of this stuff, even though God had cursed the children of Amalek, even though God had foreordained all of these events, still it was Amalek upon whom the responsibility is placed for initiating this conflict that the the, the Amalekites had with God. Does that make sense? The, the Amalekites started this whole thing. Because they did this, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Verse 3, Now go. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and and donkey. 
again, it's just so difficult for me to read, um, even standing here. And I want to approach this with great humility, right? Um, not trying to, not trying to defend a God who needs no defense, who doesn't need to justify Himself before us uh, for His for His actions. He doesn't need to do that. Uh, scripture says that everything God does, everything that God commands, everything that God instructs is is just, it is right, it is holy. Um, and so we don't want to forget those words within the text of Scripture. Uh, this verse is the reason so many people in our in our world, uh, in our culture, in our society here in America, uh, so many atheists around the world and maybe people of other religions will point at the God of the Bible and say, what a moral monster. What a genocidal maniac. What a selfish God you Christians serve. The Amalekites didn't want to worship him, so he, so he obliterated them. What, what kind of God would do that and you call your God good and you call your God benevolent and you say that your God has all wisdom and all knowledge and that God himself works all things together. What kind of good benevolent God works something like this together? There are three things that we notice, right? First, God isn't obligated to us. That's the first thing and I just want to remind us of that. God isn't obligated to people. People are obligated to to God. And when we sin against God, any wrath He reveals against us is, is completely justified because we are sinners and we are imperfect. We are the ones who have transgressed His law. He is not the one who has transgressed you know, His own law. And so He is not obligated to us. The second thing I, w- I want to notice is, or remind us of, is that the Amalekites had waged war against God for generations. Generations and generations and generations. God gave plenty of opportunities for the Amalekites to turn if they were going to turn. Right. And the third thing, we just noticed something about the nature of God, the character of God. His relationship with His creation is covenantal. And here's what I mean by that. His relationship with His creation depends wholly on what he declares from his own mouth it depends wholly on his word. He speaks the world into existence and everything is sustained by his word alone. Everything depends upon, upon the God of creation, right? And so his relationship with his creation is covenantal. He wouldn't have a relationship with his creation unless he declared it with his own mouth. He wouldn't have a relationship with his people unless he declared it with his own mouth. And he wouldn't have enemies unless he declared that with his own mouth. And that's why as early as Genesis 9, we can see that, okay, things aren't going to turn out well for the Amalekites because God has spoken a curse against the children of Amalek. God's relationship with the whole of his creation is entirely covenantal and depends upon him. We see this in Exodus chapter 20, a very famous passage of scripture known as the Ten Commandments. If you are familiar with the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6, here is what we see in God's law in the the Ten Commandments as we refer to them. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And so there's the, there's the command. Do not make idols for yourself. Do not worship 
anything besides me. And it's, it's not like a priority list, like God is our top priority. No, it's God is the only priority that matters. And that's what the point of this verse is, right? And there are so many people, even today, and the Amalekites were certainly like this, beginning with the correct knowledge of God, as we discovered two weeks ago in the previous passage, beginning with the correct knowledge of God, and then digressing into idolatry and the worship of false idols because they think, oh, there is something I can gain if I worship false idols. It was the same trap that Adam and Eve fell into in the Garden of Eden, right? Oh, if I just eat that fruit, that fruit becomes an idol. If I just eat that fruit, then I can somehow work to gain the knowledge of God. God for myself. And here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. How many things are idols to us? How many things make it onto our priority list along with God, including like work and including school and including the problems, the stresses that we experience in life? We make idols out of all of these things, financial success. I just need to provide for my family. And all of these things keep us from God. They make it onto our priority list. Whereas God says, Do not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Worship nothing besides me. We see that in the previous command here in the Ten Commandments. Verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why do we not put even family, right? Family or work or, or provision or financial success or recognition or popularity or the ministries of a local church or entertainment or, or whatever. Why do we not put those things before God? Why do we not put those things on our priority list with God just right there with him. Why? Because God says it plainly. I am a jealous God. I want your whole heart. I want all your attention. God is a jealous God and he is rightly a jealous God. And God doesn't hide this from us. He comes out and tells us exactly how he feels, right? I want all of you and I want you to be a part of my church. And if you're not, then you are worshiping an idol. Those are strong words maybe for many of us to hear. I am a jealous God. And then get this. This speaks to God's covenantal relationship with His creation. Visiting the iniquity, the sins, the the imperfections, the insufficiencies. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands or to the thousandth generation, some translations will say. And the word there for thousands, I bet you don't even know this. This is so cool. You all know a Hebrew word, and you don't even know you know a Hebrew word. Are you ready for this? It's the word elephant. Well, elephim. But you can hear the relationship, right? And elephim means thousands. How much, how, much, how much weight does an elephant carry? Thousands. So there you go. Hebrew word elephim. And that word can refer to thousands. Or it can refer to a tribe or family. And so we get the translation that comes out to the thousandth generation. To those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you, do you get this? Do you get this picture? That God has declared from his own lips the relationship a parent has with him matters for the parent's children. 
that those who do not love God, God visits their iniquities on the third and fourth generation, those who hate Him. Notice this doesn't say, all those who fail to perfectly keep every rule in the law that I have given. No, this it speaks to, to hate, not... It's not a condemnation that is even based on works. It is a condemnation that is based on our affection. Which is very interesting to me. Those who hate God, those who have this hateful affection, those who have disdain toward God. And anyway, even if they call themselves Christians, right? God visits their iniquity on the third and fourth generation. It's not about their works, because people can't work for it anyway. It's about the object of their affection. Do you love God, or, or have you made an idol? Do you love something else? like you love God, do you love something else with God. You worship work or school or stuff or money or relationships or status. Or do you worship God? We can't do it both ways, right? I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. It's affectionate. But showing loving kindness to the thousandth generation or to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's, it's not a works-based thing, right? It begins with love, and we're able to love. Why? According to John. Because he first loved us, right? Those who love me and as a result of love keep my commandments, I will bless the generations following them. I will show my loving kindness to the generations following them. A relationship that a parent has with the Lord matters for the children according to the Ten Commandments. We see this with the nation of Israel. Uh, We see throughout the book, right, that Israel is constantly rebelling against God. And what is God doing? Well, one, He punishes, right? And then there is repentance, and then God restores. God is always bringing the nation of Israel back to himself. Why? Because he has declared, he has chosen to love his chosen nation. That's not the case with the Amalekites. They just delve into sin and sin and sin and sin. Degeneration. Like we're seeing sort of in the life of Saul, right? There's this contrast drawn between the Israelites and the Amalekites. Both nations sin. The difference is God has chosen one, revealed himself to one, continues to bring one nation back to himself. God, out of his love for his nation, produces a love within his nation for him. And this love is the love by which he continues to bless the nation of Israel from generation to generation to generation. And I believe he is still blessing the nation of Israel from generation to generation despite the sin of the nation because God does not change and he is ever faithful. However, with the Amalekites, things are different Right? God has not chosen this nation. He has not loved this nation first. And so this nation cannot love him. They hate him. They have disdain for him. They are not being brought back into their relationship with God because they don't have one. Right? And what is the result there? That God will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. And so you have a household of parents who are unfaithful in their relationship with Christ. It doesn't matter which church they go to. It doesn't matter how moral they believe their actions to be. It doesn't matter how understanding they believe themselves to be. Right? What matters is their real affection toward God. If the parents are unfaithful in their relationship with God, if parents are not devoted, it is likely the children will not be devoted either. Whereas the household of faith is different, right? 
I mean genuine faith, sincere faith, like parents really love Jesus. They don't just go to church and they don't just think that children should be raised in church because they want their children to turn out like decent people, right? They actually have a relationship with God. They actually walk this out in the home and at work. Children normally in that sort of household grow up in the faith, grow up to be faithful to to God. Now there are exceptions, right? Just because you're part of the covenant people of God, and we'll get to that here in a second, just because you're part of the covenant people of God doesn't necessarily mean that you have eternal life. And just because you're not a part of the covenant people of God doesn't mean that you're, you have no hope and you're lost forever, right? This is a physical covenant that God is working out. That's important for us to remember. This is why Paul could write in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. But he's an unbeliever. How can he be sanctified through his wife? Even though he is an unbeliever, because he is married to a believer, a faithful woman, he is considered to be part of the physical, the visible covenant people of God. Even though he is an unbeliever and does not have eternal life, still he gets to experience some of the blessings that God has for his people on this earth, even though he won't be with Christ forever. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife, in a similar way, is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean. If no parent is faithful, the children are unclean. Not sanctified in this way, not a part of the visible covenant of faith, the covenant people of God. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And so even those Israelites who would never accept Jesus... They were holy because they were part of the covenant people of God on this earth. In the visible church, you have believing parents who are raising children. Those children are part of the, the covenant people of God, the visible church on this earth. And so what, what Moses wrote, what God gave Moses in the law and the Ten Commandments, insisting that the relationship a parent has with God means something for the children that's still in effect today. It's not like this has changed. This still sort of matters, right? And it's why the Amalekites just from generation to generation to generation just degenerated while the Israelites were always brought back in every generation to God because there was a difference in affection, a difference in the heart because of the work of God. And this is the picture that God is painting for us, right? The Amalekites, a reprobate nation from generation to generation. The Israelites, an elect nation from generation to generation. And God is painting for us a picture of his relationship with his creation and his relationship with his true spiritual people. It's important for us to grasp this, right? Now there are are a couple different denominations or faiths that will think about this covenant community in different ways. And so you will hear people referring to covenant community um, as they refer to infant baptism or pedo-baptism. So I want you to know that we, <laughs> we, are, we are Baptist, and that means we believe in believer's baptism, credo-baptism, uh, by confession, uh, which means we do not believe in baptizing infants like Presbyterians or like Lutherans or like 
Catholics. Now, Catholics believe in baptizing infants because, uh, at least at one point in time, in the Middle Ages at least, uh, pedo-baptism meant entry into the church, the church Catholic, which means the universal church. Catholic church was the only game in town. Uh, and you look at Catholic doctrine, and Catholic doctrine still states, right, that if you are baptized into the Catholic church, you receive eternal life because you belong to the church Catholic, the universal church, and the church holds the keys to the meritorious grace of God. And so, you're baptized into the Catholic church, they open the treasury of merit, and put enough of the merit of Christ on you that earns your way into heaven. That's essentially the way that it is. And so infant baptism was practiced because parents didn't want their children to go to hell. Right? That and you had to be part of the Catholic Church to inherit the family's property. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Now with the Presbyterians, the reasoning is just a little bit different, right? And I love our Presbyterian cousins. They're right here next to us. If we could have some Presbyterians in this church, that would be okay with me. Our Presbyterian cousins, brothers and sisters, think about infant baptism in a completely different way than the Roman Catholic Church does, right? Infant baptism is practiced by believing parents who see themselves as faithful, who are devoted to a local church, and who baptize their infants as an outward sign that the infant is part of the visible church, the covenant community of God. And in that way, it is very meaningful. So while we reject the Catholic, the Roman Catholic version of paedo-baptism, infant baptism, we don't have to argue against the Presbyterian way of doing that or the Presbyterian reasoning behind that. While still, we recognize that we don't actually see baptism in the New Testament as a sign of covenant community. But we do recognize that God relates to His creation in a covenantal way, in a covenantal way. And so the relationship a parent has with the Lord matters. It matters for the children even. And without that relationship, it amazes me, absolutely amazes me, that parents want their children to have a good relationship with the Lord, to have a great spiritual life, right? But they're themselves not committed. And it's like, do you not realize that your relationship with the Lord means more concerning your children's spiritual life than making them go to church? If you're not living it, it's likely that they won't either. And we get this in the scriptures. And there are some who were young parents who are now very faithful Christians who weren't when they were young parents and their children have rebelled. And they have gone off in some different direction. We ought to know that God doesn't depend on our parenting skills to raise our children and praise Him for that. He still has a plan for those children. So if you are one of those parents that I feel like my children are just rebelling against the Lord and I feel like it's all my fault, know this, there is nothing you can do to override the plan of God. (laughs) And I promise you that no matter what failures or insufficiencies there were previously in your life, no matter what failures or insufficiencies there will still be in all of our lives. And that is a comfort to know that God's plan is still accomplished, right? Still we see in Scripture this picture of the covenant community of God. 
Verses 4 through 6. Saul's war. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the nations of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Why? Why? The Kenites are still in the land of Canaan. Why isn't Saul about to destroy them like God commanded him to destroy the Amalekites? Well, the first reason is this, and I actually applaud Saul here because he was thinking in this instance like he wasn't most of the time. God did not command him to go and to eliminate the Kenites. He was only speaking concerning the Amalekites. And here we see another distinction drawn between the Kenites and the Amalekites. Uh, Saul mentions here that they were kind to the nation of Israel when Israel came up from Egypt. Who were the Kenites? Do you remember any story whatsoever about who the Kenites were in Scripture? Might have been, but I don't know for sure. Moses. No. He was an Israelite. He was an Israelite. But Moses. Moses killed an Egyptian at one point. Do you remember this? He killed an Egyptian soldier defending a Hebrew slave. And he had to flee from Egypt. And he went and stayed in the land of Midian with a man named Jethro. Now Jethro was a Kenite, not a Midianite. Jethro was a Kenite, and he married a Kenite, and Jethro gave him refuge from Egypt. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, it was Jethro who was there helping and giving sage advice to Moses, right? The Kenites were kind to Israel. They were Israel's ally, and because they were, they were allies with Israel, they were allies with God, again we see the sort of covenant relationship that God has with His creation. I will show my loving kindness to thousandth generation of those who love me. This doesn't mean that all of the Kenites were part of God's elect people. It does mean, it does mean that from generation to generation, God showed His loving kindness to the Kenites because, because the Kenites were the allies of Israel. Verses 7 through 9, Saul's disobedience. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag. Captured? What, What were God's instructions? He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But... Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Okay, God, we'll do what you want, but only as far as we agree with you. So Saul only destroyed that which he hated. He didn't follow the instructions of God. He did not have the heart of of God, right? 
Now there is a really terrible way that people will apply verses like this. They will say silly things like, America, you are so destitute and you are so immoral, America. You must turn around and become moral again or God will strike you down. And God's wrath will burn against you. Right? That is not the way in which we can apply this text. And the reason is this. That God has selected the Amalekites for destruction long before this. God wasn't merely just responding to some immorality in the Amalekite nation. That would not be graceful and that would not be merciful. Instead, God, as early as Genesis 9, if, if not having decided this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, from Genesis 9, he is explicit about this. Like, the sons of Canaan will be my enemies from generation to generation. So God has been working all this together. It's been a thousand years since God's promise to Abraham at this point. God has been bearing with the people. And so he's not just responding to some, something immoral. God is a God who, who satisfies the penalty for sin in and of himself. That's, that's what he does, right? And so it can't be said that God is some genocidal egomaniac. Just that accusation doesn't make sense here concerning this text of Scripture. Because God has been working, He's had patient endurance for a long time here. He has been the God of mercy, and He's been the God of grace. But there ultimately comes a time when those who don't turn to Him must, must pay for their own sin if they don't accept the, the sacrifice of Jesus, right? So we can't apply the text in that way. Neither can we say, parents... You must do all the right things and you must teach your children to do all the right things if you want them to be good Christians and if you want them to have decent lives. That's not where this text leads us either. Instead, we just ask a couple of questions. We, we know that we can only love because God has first loved us. We know that it is God who continuously brought His covenant people Israel back to Himself. And so we just... We ask this question to, to parents and to, to grandparents or, or these questions. I say this question and then I'm going to ask you five questions. The first is this. Do you love God? Remember, it's a matter of affection, not works. Just do, you, do you really love God? Fathers, do you really love God? Grandfathers, do you really love God? People who will be fathers, do you really love God? Grandmothers and mothers and future mothers... Do you actually love God or are you just going to church or are you just calling yourself a a Christian without actually giving your heart to Christ, right? The second question we would ask is this. Okay, is God your priority? On, on any Sunday morning, are you looking for excuses to just not go and be under the teaching of God's holy word. What are the reasons you're in church? If you're in church for any other reason than to sit under the, the correct teaching and right application of God's word, then there's probably an idol there somewhere, right? Because you're not there to hear from God and to praise God. You're there to be entertained, to be with friends, to take advantage of some program that a local church offers. And that's idolatry, plain and simple. What is, what is your priority? Is it God? 
The third question we ask is this. Are you dedicated to participating in the things of God because you love Him? Not just to gain something from God. Oh, my life needs to be fixed, so I'm going to go to church for a few weeks and get my life right. It's not, (laughs) no. It doesn't work like that. Are you dedicated to participating in the things of God because you love Him? It has to come out of a heart of love, otherwise it's not genuine, it's not sincere. I'd be like me, just living in a marriage relationship and saying, oh, I better do the dishes and clean the kitchen, or she's going to be mad at me. <laughs> That's not a very good marriage. <laughs> Why would that be a good relationship with God? That doesn't make sense. Keep this in mind. Not all local churches represent the true church. This is because many local churches in our day are addicted to so much less than what God has to offer in His Son, Jesus Christ. Lesser things than the Word of God. Things like programs and things like entertaining music. Things like personalities. And things like the works-based doctrines of men. And the fifth question, are you discipling your children and grandchildren by grace through faith? not according to some sort of workspace righteousness. I think the trouble we often get into is we think we think we have to teach our children how to how to do all the right stuff and we limit discipleship to that and discipleship concerns concerns the grace of God and and the faith of the person, the affection of the person. That's where real discipleship is. That's why we ask God to come and wrestle with us. That's why it's not so important that you remember every single word of every single sermon. That's why it's more important that our hearts just be changed, right? Because this whole thing is it's more about affection. God is rightly jealous. He is a jealous God. He yearns for us. Why does He desire that the whole membership of the local church gather and praise Him and learn from His word on On Sunday morning, why does God desire that? Because He is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to be doing other stuff, no matter how tempting it is, right? He's a jealous God. Why does He want us to give our heart and our soul to Him? Why does He want us to, even though we have all these other options available for our lives, and even though we have all these chores to do at home, and even though we have all this stuff we have to do for work, and even though we have to make X amount of dollars to provide for ourselves and for our families, why... Why does He want us to say no to some of those things so that we can live well for Him, live a a simple life? Why? Because He is a jealous God, and He is honest about that. And because He is a covenantal God, and He is honest about that, God is rightly jealous. And whether we want to admit it or not, the whole heart of every single person belongs to Him. Whether saved or unsaved, whether repentant or not, God is sovereign. He owns everything. He created the hearts that beat in our chests. He owns it. And so we are obligated to Him. This morning's message is difficult. (laughs) Difficult to preach and teach, difficult to study, and difficult for people to accept. (laughs) All the way around. So thank you for bearing with me this morning. Thank you for letting me walk through the text of Scripture. Not every church really allows that. They say they allow it, but they don't really. Thank you for letting me not come up with excuses like the Advent season to preach other stuff.
right and just skip a part of the text. Maybe they won't notice if I do an Advent series and then just skip that passage. Maybe they won't notice when we come back in January. No, thank you so much for being so dedicated to the Word of God, uh, because not not all people are. Uh, we will have a time of reflection. <laughs> We're watching you. Albert's the one who said when I came one year ago, happy anniversary, church. We've been here for a year. Albert was the one who said one year ago, we were driving here and he called me and he said, brother, can't wait for you to get here. We're going to hold your feet to the fire. (laughs) And I was like, oh, (laughs) all right, we'll have a time of reflection. Think upon these things. If you have family members who are not in church this morning, who really are not just sincere, real, genuine Christians, right? Pray for them. Uh, Dedicate your year 2020 to reach them with the gospel and to get them involved. There are many people who say they are Christians and, you know, we can't condemn anybody. But if you prioritize stuff other than God at any time, not just on Sunday morning, but at any time, then chances are you don't have a real relationship with with the Lord. So pray for family members. Dedicate your year 2020, and I will dedicate mine too, to reaching our family members who are lost, uh, to reaching our friends who are, who are lost, who don't know Jesus, and to getting them involved in the body that we participate in together for our good.